Hello, podcast world. I must have been about 15 years old when I did the Evangelism Explosion course at my church. It was a course that trained you how to knock on the door of a stranger with the intention of leading them to Jesus. My church had the whole neighborhood mapped out so that we would strategically make sure that no family was missed. I'm not exactly sure why I signed up for the course because I was not at all comfortable with the idea of knocking on doors, but my friend Dave was going and so I went. So here is the, the spiel. When someone answers the door that you knock on, you say, hi, my name is Skip and I'm from such and such a church down the street. Can I ask you a question? So, of course, the person would always say, sure. Now, remember, this was 1970, and the only strangers knocking on doors were the fuller brush salesman or the encyclopedia guy, and both of them were pretty acceptable. Anyway, when the person agreed to answering the question, you'd start in. If you were to die tonight, and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Basically, we were being trained to be salesmen, but we're not selling the World Book Encyclopedia or Fuller Brushes. We were selling eternal life. The choice between heaven or hell when you die. We were selling salvation. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Salvation's a big, important word in Christianity in pretty much all forms, from evangelical to Pentecostal, and even in Orthodox and Catholic theology, it shows up a lot in the Bible, something like 500 times if you count the word saved and savior, and that's a lot. For many years, every time I read the word salvation or savior or saved, no matter what the context was, I had a filter through which I defined the word. The filter was that salvation is ultimately talking about going to heaven when you die. Salvation was about God who through Jesus our Savior saved us from sin, which by the way we inherited from Adam, so that we could go to heaven when we die. And of course, there's the inverse, that if you don't accept this salvation, then you have chosen eternal torture in hell. So in other words, we are being saved from hell. When I was young, that was what the bulk of evangelistic sermons were about. Do you want to go to heaven or hell? You have to make a choice. There was more than one preacher that told me that I could walk out the door of the church that very day and get hit by a truck, so I needed to choose right now. Now is the appointed hour. Today is the day of salvation.
But what if I told you that salvation in the Bible is not about the afterlife at all? When the Bible speaks of salvation, it's not talking about going to heaven when you die. Now, that's not an easy filter to let go of, I know. But in the 500 times that the Bible speaks about salvation, it is rarely and probably never talking about the afterlife. So if that's true, then what is salvation? I'll give you the definition that I've landed on, and then I'll see if I can show you why I have come to that point of view. Salvation is the process of transformation both of ourselves and of our world. Let me say that again. Salvation is the process of transformation, both of ourselves and of our world. It is personal and it is social. Obviously, there is no way we can look at all 500 passages in the Bible in this podcast, but we certainly can look at some of the major themes of salvation that come up in the Bible. So let me start with this. The idea of heaven or hell or any kind of an afterlife is not known in the Old Testament. The first mention of any afterlife is in Daniel, which is the very last book to be written. So when you read salvation in the Old Testament, it has nothing to do with the afterlife, at least in the minds of those who wrote it. The primary narrative for the Jewish people in the Old Testament was salvation as freedom from bondage. It starts with the Exodus story, which is incredibly important to the Jewish people and is celebrated every year at Passover. It is central to their understanding of God. The Jews had been slaves in Egypt for 700 years. That means if you're a slave, your grandparents were slaves, your great-grandparents were slaves, all the way back to your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. That's a long time. So God sends Moses to free them from bondage. And the prime metaphor for salvation as freedom from bondage is the parting of the Red Sea. These tens of thousands, maybe even as many as 100,000 slaves, escape from Egypt and they're on the run. They come to the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's armies are in hot pursuit. So Moses raises his staff in the air and the sea parts and the people walk through on dry land. But the real salvation happens when the Egyptian armies try to cross. The water closes in on them and they are all drowned. Now the people are truly free. Now salvation has come. Listen to how the writer of Exodus puts it in chapter 14. 
Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What a picture. Your captors, your abusers are dead on the seashore. In the next chapter of Exodus, it says, The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. In other words, he has become my freedom from slavery and bondage. But it's not just freedom from slavery. It's also freedom from political bondage. It's freedom from religious bondage and from economic bondage. Allow me to digress for just a moment and get on my little soapbox. The freedom from economic bondage is really interesting, and I think it's really important to understand. In Leviticus, God declares that every 50th year was to be the year of Jubilee, or the year of release. In that year, the ownership of all agricultural land was to be returned to the original family of ownership without any compensation. Now, the truth is that there's really no evidence that Israel actually ever practiced Jubilee, but it's still there, and it flies in the face of capitalism. I really believe that income equality is the way of God. Let me say that again. God's heart is income equality, period, full stop. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. Why can't we get that? The land was to be returned without compensation. So let's say you had land in your family and you have worked the land and improved it for the last 40 years. It's growing more crops than ever, but now it's the Jubilee year and you have to give it back to the family that had it before you without any compensation. You don't get paid. You lose, they gain. In our capitalistic mindset, we scream that that is unfair. And for my friends who are biblical literists, what do you do with that? The discussion around reparations is a hot topic, both here in the United States and certainly in South Africa. What do we do with this idea of reparations in the light of Jubilee? Whose side do you think God is on? In the Old Testament, salvation includes freedom from economic bondage without a doubt. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I'm going to come back to that later on. But for now, let's move on. Another theme that we see in the Bible when it comes to salvation is freedom from exile. In the late 500s BCE, Nebuchadnezzar II conquered Jerusalem. He began to take the best and the brightest of Israel to Babylon to be slaves. So for the best part of a generation, Israel was in exile. 
The prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah all wrote in that time period. Finally, Cyrus decreed that the exiles could begin to return to their beloved homeland. The historical context for this part of the story is found in the second half of Isaiah. In fact, half of the occurrences of the word salvation or saved in the Old Testament are found in the second half of Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 7 says that Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. I have often heard from people who feel like they are in spiritual exile. Maybe their deconstruction has pushed them out of the spiritual community that they counted on for so long, and that's painful. Or maybe they've come out as gay or lesbian or trans and have been ostracized from their community and maybe even their biological families. Or maybe their family is broken apart and they feel lost and alone. I did a podcast called Hope in Exile back in December of 2020. It was part of an Advent series. If you feel like you're in exile, I would suggest you go back and listen to it because there is hope, even in exile. Another thing we see in the Bible is that salvation is about freedom from or rescue from peril. The book of Psalms is full of this idea. In fact, most of the time in the Psalms, Salvation is about rescue from peril, usually caused by my enemies. So this is from chapter 68. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death. Or this one from chapter 35. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Or one of my favorites, which is Psalms 27.1, partly because when Sheila and I were married in 1979, she came down the aisle to the musical version of this passage of Scripture by Francis Elliston. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In the 60 times or so that the word salvation comes up in the Psalms, it's always about being saved from my enemies. Not about being saved from hell. And oh, by the way, When you read about being saved from the pit in the Psalms, that's not about hell at all. The pit is just about death. It's it's not the afterlife. It's just, I'm dead. So there are three clear ideas of salvation presented in the Old Testament. Freedom from bondage, freedom from exile, and freedom from peril. Now let's shift our thinking to the New Testament, and let's start with Paul since his letters were written before anything else in the New Testament. Paul speaks quite a bit about salvation or being saved. 
And as I look at these different passages, what is quite apparent is that they are clearly not talking about going to heaven when you die. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Did you catch that? Who are being saved. In our old view of salvation, you are either saved or you're not. You're in or you're out. So Paul must be speaking about something else. Or how about in Philippians 2 when he says, Work on your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do I work on my salvation if it's about going to heaven when I die? That is clearly not what Paul is talking about. In fact, as I look through every single passage of Paul that speaks of salvation or being saved, I think I could make the argument that there isn't one that is primarily about going to heaven when you die. I think what Paul is talking about is personal transformation, about a change of mind and a change of heart and a change of attitude now in this life. Transformation in the here and now, not in the sweet by and by. There are a number of places in the New Testament where the word salvation is not used, but it's clearly implied. So, for example, Jesus, on a number of occasions, heals people of their blindness. It's a metaphor for a new way of seeing. John speaks about the fact that Jesus is the light of the world, but... Jesus also speaks about the fact that there are sighted people who are actually blind. Seeing things in a new light is a picture of salvation. The same idea with the picture we see in the New Testament about death to life. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, clearly a picture of salvation. Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again. Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it can't bring forth life. Over and over, we see this picture of death and life, or death leading to resurrection. At the same time, Jesus also talked of people who are living but are actually dead and in need of salvation. Clearly, these pictures of salvation are not about the afterlife. They are about the here and now. They are about transformation in this life. When I first started studying the idea of salvation and forming this opinion, one of the things I wondered about was the claims of everlasting life in the New Testament. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that salvation is about everlasting life? Our English versions of the Bible use both the terms everlasting life 
and eternal life, but in, in different passages. But in Greek, they're exactly the same word. I think I prefer the translation as eternal life, and here's why. In John 3.16, which is the most obvious example, it says, Whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. At least that's how I memorized it as a kid. I have always read everlasting life as numerical, as a timeline. Everlasting life is about going to heaven when I die. Another way to say it is that everlasting life sounds quantitative. What if eternal life is more qualitative than quantitative? John also says this about eternal life in chapter 17. And this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. Now understand, that is the exact same Greek word that he uses in 3.16. But here, eternal life is about knowing God. And the Greek word that we translate into knowing God is about a, a deep intimacy with God. In other words, we are speaking about eternal life being qualitative, not quantitative. Eternal life is about an intimate relationship with God in the here and now, not in eternity somewhere. Remember that story in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is just beginning his ministry? I've talked about this before, but it's just so important that it's worth talking about again. Jesus comes to the synagogue, and it's his turn to read from the scriptures. So he selects a scroll from Isaiah, and he finds this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Goes on to say, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus didn't say he came to make sure that we all go to heaven when we die. He came to bring salvation here and now in this life. Transformation here and now. Change here and now. At the beginning of this podcast, I said salvation was about the transformation of ourselves and of our world. The end of our world part is critically important in any discussion about salvation. But I think I'm going to save that and come back to it in the next episode because I don't want to rush over it now. But for now, let me just give you this little teaser about what's to come. When I use this term, our world. I could also use the term our politics, at least in a broad sense of the word politics, because it's actually about how we organize ourselves and make decisions and live our lives in the world. 
So in a very real sense, salvation is about the transformation of ourselves and our politics. I think the Bible speaks in political terms concerning salvation as moving from violence to peace, for example. So I want to talk about our addiction to violence, to war, and to guns. I think salvation is about moving from injustice to justice. And so I want to talk more about income equality and racial equality and gender equality. So yes, the next episode might be a little bit controversial, but, but I hope you will come back. I'll try to get it out in the next week or so. Until then, I'd love to hear from you either by email or on my social media platforms. I've put the links in the show notes so you can find them there or you can find them all on my webpage. As always, the Patreon link is there as well if you would like to support the podcast. That would be a great help. So until then, stay safe. Shalom. Shalom.